Hey, good to be with all of you today. Uh, today we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 10. We're going to be working our way through verses 38 through 42. So you can be uh, making your way there. Just excited to share uh, this time together. So before we dive in here, let me pray, and then we'll uh, hop into the sermon. Father, thank you so much for this time together. What a joy to worship together, to spend time around the Lord's table, and just remember intentionally and thoughtfully, carefully about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so that we, by faith, who believe in him, would have eternal life. And what a joy to share in that moment today, Lord. Now, as we spend some time worshiping together, as we study the word, Lord, open up our hearts, draw us in, allow us to see Jesus in fresh ways, uh, expose any sin in our heart that we can repent of and draw closer uh, to you, Lord. Allow me to preach what is right and true and wise. And Lord, through all of this, we, you receive glory and honor. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let me start out by asking a question. Uh, have you ever been in a situation before where you just couldn't say no to something? And maybe it was something good, maybe it was something not so good, but you just couldn't say no. You had to say yes. That tug, that pull, that draw on your heart was just so strong that you just had to say yes. I just have to, to make this move. Now, there are hundreds of examples and illustrations I could share from my own life, but let me share one that, that I think is a, a little funny, something that took place in my childhood back in the early 90s, okay? So we're going to take a trip on the Wayback Machine to little Isaiah sitting at West Central Elementary, high, uh, elementary School cafeteria, okay? So here I am. I'm sitting in the elementary cafeteria, minding my own business, eating my lunch, when all of a sudden, out of the blue, peas start hitting my forehead, okay? They're just one after another, one after another. I finally, I'm getting to the point where I'm like, what in the world is going on? So I look to my right, up a few chairs over was a cousin of mine. Now, this cousin that I had, he was more like, a brother. It's like a sibling relationship. It's like a love-hate. Like we loved each other one minute, and then we were punching each other the next. Like that was just kind of the, the relationship, the dynamic that he and I had. And so when I finally realized it was him, I, I laughed it off and thought, oh, that's, that's just who he is. That's our relationship. No big deal. But he wouldn't stop. So I, I thought it would be over. He just kept chucking these peas, just kept chucking these peas. And I'm thinking, I got to end this. And that's where the draw began to really be strong in my heart. I have to retaliate. I have to settle the score. I have to make sure that no kid in West Central Elementary history ever gets hit with peas ever again. I'm settling the score today. So here's the, the plan that I devised in my head. I walked away from the lunch table after I was dismissed. I was going to grab my coat and then go out to uh, recess. Well, I just happened to walk by his end of the table. I went to reach for his tray that had all of his peas still on there, minus the ones that had already hit my head. And I grabbed them, shoved them all in his face, and I smeared them anywhere there was open spot on his face. Like in his nostrils, eyebrows, hair, he wore glasses, they were smeared all over his glasses. Any place I could find an empty spot for a smashed pea, that's what I did. Now, that felt good. I'm not going to lie. It felt good in the moment. But I realized after that, that my priorities were probably a little bit out of balance. You know, that pull, that tug, that desire was so strong, and it just totally put on end my priority list. Like, what I should have been doing, or what I should have done, was go to the lunch attendant and say, hey, so-and-so is throwing peas at me, can you please ask him to stop? 
That was the right thing to do, not handle it my own way. And here's, here's the problem with this. The lunch attendant actually saw the whole thing. She saw him throwing peas at me. She saw me smash peas in his face. And then we both end up going to the principal's office. We had consequences. We had to clean the cafeteria for a week. We had to miss recess. And then on top of that, a little salt in the wound here. Both of our moms actually worked at the school that this happened. So in the early 90s, you could get away with a lot of stuff. That day, I didn't get away with anything because my mom actually worked there, and so did his mom. But my priorities were just out of whack. The pool was strong. And I'm sure in some level, you have this desire in your heart as well. You have an example, you have a story like this. But we have these pools in our life, don't we? We may not all be tempted to shove peas in another person's face, but we're drawn to something. Right? We're, we're, we have a desire for something. We have a possession, maybe. Maybe it's a person. It's recreation. Maybe it's a hobby of some kind. Sometimes they're really good things, but they can still be a tug. They can still be a draw, and sometimes we just can't say no. So I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves is, does this thing, does this draw, does it define who I am? Does it set the priority list in my life? To borrow a phrase from our text, is this thing, this draw, this desire, is this my good portion? Is this what sets the trend for my life? I think another way we can think through this is actually comes from an example I read in a book earlier this summer, and the author asks this question. If someone were to record your life for a week and then replay that tape to a group of strangers, what would they say your good portion is? What would they say your top priority is? Remember, these strangers have no other information or detail about your life except for this tape that they're seeing in front of them right now. And they're going to make their judgment based on what they see in front of them. I would say this is this person's top priority. What would they say about your life? What would they say about my life? I think priorities are a big deal. I think the good portion in our life really matters. And in our text today, we're going to see this play out with two sisters. Very familiar passage of Scripture. We're going to look and talk about Martha, and we're going to talk about Mary from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And notice the priority list. Notice the good portion. Notice where they're, they're fueled from. We're going to see this in our text today. Notice the draws on both of their hearts. We're going to pick up in verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think to really appreciate what's happening in this portion of the text, I think context is going to help set the scene for this. So let's just do a quick survey of chapter 10, just to set the scene here. Here's what's happening in Luke chapter 10. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus appointed 72 individuals, uh, in addition to his disciples, to go out into the field and really do and perform a mission trip. 
They were going to go out, they were going to teach uh, people about the gospel, share the kingdom message. And in preparation for this mission, Jesus is equipping and prepping the team. He's explaining what they should and should not take and what they should and should not say. They're to take no knapsacks with them. They're to take no money bags, no extra sandals. And in a warning, Jesus actually tells these individuals that you're actually going to be like lambs in the midst of wolves. It's going to be treacherous at times. You're going to feel pushback at times. It could potentially be dangerous. Persecution might be something you experience. He's really prepping them for this trip. And in addition to working through these details, what they should and shouldn't bring, and likewise, he also tells them, hey, I want to give you some logistical instructions as well. Here's what I want you to say when you enter a certain city or, or to a certain house. He also teaches them, here's what you should say when you are rejected in a certain city or a certain house. Jesus is equipping them very well. And when we think about this idea of rejection for a moment, we see that this is a big deal for Jesus. He wants to to make sure these disciples are ready when this comes. And after he finishes equipping them in this way, he turns his attention to a couple of cities, and he gives some really harsh words to these cities. Notice what he says in verses 12 to 16. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You should be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Essentially, Jesus is getting them ready to say, listen, those who hear the gospel yet reject, they're going to suffer judgment. In fact, the cities who hear and hear and still continue to reject and reject, they're going to be more culpable, which is why he directs his gaze towards Capernaum and gives the harsh word for them. Remember, Jesus lived there. He taught there. He performed miracles there. Capernaum knew Jesus. Jesus knew them. But this was all part of the training that Jesus is giving his disciples before sending them into the mission field. What we learn is as the disciples come back, that this was one of the most successful mission trips ever performed. I mean, the disciples come back, they are fired up. Jesus is excited at what has happened. Listen, when they came back, they were telling stories of demons being omitted out of people at the name of Jesus. Jesus says that he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. This was a mission trip to be remembered. And they came back, they were fired up. They were celebrating together, bringing glory to God for everything that he had accomplished and the ministry that was unleashed on earth. This was was impactful. And it's also right after this that Jesus, in chapter 10, shares about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think this is going to be significant a little later on in our sermon. And so we see something changing in the ministry of Jesus at this conjecture. At this point in the ministry of Christ— the, the signs and wonders and miracles, although not completely dissolved, they begin to take a little bit of a less priority. And what starts to make its way to the, the top is the teaching. Now, both were always in play, but now we see a higher priority on teaching. 
Jesus just sharing the message, sharing lessons, teaching parables. This is a shift in the ministry of Christ. And so when we arrive at this village, we're introduced to Mary and Martha. This is where the transition point is. It's Jesus just teaching. Jesus just sharing about himself. Jesus just sharing parables, speaking the kingdom. And so this is where Mary and Martha are finally introduced to this wonderful teacher. And we, it says that the text says that they entered a certain village or a village. Now, Luke doesn't name it here, but we know from John's gospel, this is actually the village of Bethany. We know that they, this is where they resided. We also know about these sisters that they had a brother. Their brother was named Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, we see this in John, the gospel of John, that Lazarus was the one who died. Jesus wept over him. And then ultimately went to the tomb, called out Lazarus' name, and Lazarus came back to life. This is this family. This is this Mary and Martha. And we would find out through the course of Scripture that this was actually a really good relationship. Christ loved this family. This family loved Christ. It was a dynamic relationship with one another. And this is the starting point. This is when they're first introduced. What else do we know about these sisters? What else can help us in examining this text? Well, first of all, we know that Mary and Martha were believers. And notice in verse 40 that Martha calls Jesus Lord. It was, it was a sign that she had trusted in him. It was, it was a, a, a proclamation that she was following him. She called him Lord. And the same way, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus this is also significant. This was her way of saying, I am a disciple. I've trusted in this man. I've listened and embraced the gospel message that was taught, the kingdom message. I believe, I receive. It's very likely that Mary and Martha became followers of Christ and disciples of Christ during this powerful mission trip that had just finished, that had just ended. It's likely they became believers during the course of that ministry. So that's what, one thing we know about Mary and Martha. I think another thing we know is they responded to the visit of Jesus very differently. When Jesus came into their home, they responded very, very differently. We notice this pretty clearly in the text, don't we? Now, first, let's talk about Martha. Martha is responding to the visit of Jesus in, in a really frenetic way. She was very frantic. She wanted everything to be perfect. She wanted the table setting to be perfect. She wanted the food cooked to perfection. I think her, uh, we can base this on the text that her priorities were not exactly aligned with where they should have been. But, but Martha was just a bit frantic, but she was organized and she wanted everything where it was supposed to be. Now, in that regard, I, I have a lot of respect for Martha. I actually love this about Martha because it's the exact opposite of me. Right? She's type A. She's organized. She has a place for everything. I am type B. I'm a bit disorganized. I get, I get lost in details. Like, that's just not my personality. So we're very different. So my heart, I get a bit envious of Martha in this. And then we have Mary. She seems to be, at least in this moment, the exact opposite of Martha. Not worried about the food at all. She's not worried about the place settings. She's not worried about the house. She's not worried about the decor. The only thing she wants to do in this moment is sit at the feet of Jesus. These two sisters couldn't be more different. Now, I'm sure we've heard a hundred sermons on this text. I'm sure we've read books, we've listened to podcasts. We know what this is. And I think historically, 
we have a tendency to come down really hard on Martha. We like to blitz Martha when it comes to this. However, we need to ask ourselves, is Martha doing anything wrong? I would say no. I would say she's not doing anything wrong. Hospitality isn't wrong. Right? Serving others isn't wrong. Hosting well isn't wrong. I think, in fact, that we could probably make an argument that Martha is operating in her spiritual giftedness. She is doing what the Spirit has gifted her to do, and she's doing it really well. These things aren't wrong at all. But there is a problem. There's a, there's a disconnect that's happening here, and I think it's priorities. I think our priorities are a little bit out of balance. See, in this moment, Martha has traded in the best thing for just another thing, just something else, just something else to occupy her time, just something else to distract her but she doesn't see it. That disconnect is very apparent. And notice what she says to Jesus as, as this, uh, this pace really begins to quicken in her heart. In verse 40, she says that she initiates this conversation with Jesus. In verse 40, she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, that's a really harsh criticism towards Jesus, isn't it? Lord, don't you care? Hello? I'm working, I'm serving, I'm sweating. My sister's just sitting. Do you not care? And then the command, tell her then to help me. Martha was fuming. Martha was hot. She was upset in this moment. Lord, do you not care? Now, in this moment, I don't think Jesus cares at all about the menu. I don't think he cares at all about the decor. I don't think he cares at all about how the house looks. I don't think he cares that the bed hasn't been made. I think he's concerned about something far greater. And Martha's just not seeing it. See, I think Martha's biggest problem was she prioritized just another thing, maybe even a good thing, over the best thing. See, at the beginning part of verse 40, it says that Martha was distracted with much serving. See, the, the Greek word here is perispao, and it means to be drawn away. Just like Isaiah was drawn away to just pay back my cousin who was throwing peas at me. I was drawn away. I was distracted by that. Martha was drawn away by some really, really good things. Cleaning, serving, cooking, prepping, hosting, serving. It was all good, but it was keeping her from the best thing. Time with Christ. Time with Jesus. I think a lot of ways, so this is the first century in our text, in a lot of ways in our 21st century, I still think we're battling with this culture. We're battling with the culture of being drawn away by many things, by being distracted by many things. The pull on our heart is coming from all angles, and it's so easy to say yes when we should say no, or no when we should say yes. We're just drawn away by these different things, and how many of us feel like this? I have so many things going on. I have so many irons in the fire. You should look at my calendar. You should see what my family is like. We have so many things. How many of us feel like a Martha? And we're drawn away. It means that we're making the priority in our life something it was never designed to be. And I think we can take a quick survey of our life and realize what our top priority is, what our good portion is. Again, if someone were to replay a table of our life for a week, 
and then show it to a group of strangers, what would they say the top priority in our life is? Because the reality is we're consistently drawn away by many lesser things. Let me flesh this out a bit more. I think of the family who misses Sunday after Sunday so their family or kids can be involved in sports or other activities. But they'll miss Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I think of the individual man or woman who will give up time with Jesus so they can invest another night in the golf course or another spot at their favorite fishing hole or more time on the boat or more time doing this. I think of those who will prioritize recreation on a regular basis over worship on a regular basis. I think this is part of the culture that that we're talking about here. Drawn away by so much all of the time. When we find ourselves, we feel these draws, we feel these tugs, and then we feel frantic. And consequently, we find ourselves busier than ever, more disconnected than ever, spiritually weaker than ever, more relationally depleted, and completely overwhelmed. This is what it means to be drawn away. This is perispao. This is Martha was distracted by much serving. How many of us feel like this? Right? We see the symptoms. I'm spiritually weak. I don't have any friends. I'm not connecting like I used to. And so we see the symptoms and we think that's the problem. But maybe we need to look a little bit deeper. Maybe the, the good portion isn't what it should be. Maybe the priorities isn't, the priority list isn't what it should be. Sometimes we feel like a Martha. And again, sometimes the things that draw us aren't necessarily bad. Sometimes they're actually good, but they can't be the top priority. Well, Martha's having this going on in her heart. Jesus sees the whole thing. And what does he see? What does he think about this? How, How does Jesus feeling about this in this moment? Well, I don't think Jesus is all that impressed. I think Jesus loves Martha. I think he loves her so much. I think he loves her hospitable heart. He, he loves that she's a server. He loves that she's willing to, to, to get her hands dirty and work and, and give her all. He loves that about her. I think Jesus is all into working and serving and giving. Think about what's happening in the context of Luke chapter 10. What has Jesus spent his time doing? Building up missionaries, launching missionaries, going into the mission field and performing gospel work. Think about what happened. Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Demons omitted. Like we see powerful, earth-shattering ministry. Jesus teaching, Jesus giving, Jesus serving, Jesus working. Of course, Jesus is not anti-working. But that, that, that thing that Martha's missing is, is where Jesus wants to look. That's where he wants to go. And so he steps into this. He speaks to Martha. This is where Jesus speaks. What's interesting is this interaction that Jesus has with Martha, Jesus shares two sentences. Two sentences. It's amazing how powerful this is in two sentences. But this, listen to what Jesus says in verses 41 and 42 as he begins to interact with Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. I love the compassion of Jesus in this moment. I love the, the interaction that Jesus is having with Martha in this moment. Notice that Jesus uses Martha's name twice. I love that. 
I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, it stresses the urgency and importance of the message that Jesus is getting ready to share with Martha. Right? Martha, whatever you have going on right now, I want you to stop and I want you to listen. Martha, Martha, come out of the kitchen. Put down your utensils. Don't worry about the bed. Don't worry about the meal. Martha, Martha, listen to what I'm getting ready to say. I think it's significant that Jesus uses her name twice. But I also think it's significant because it shows a great deal of compassion and grace and mercy and love towards Martha. Like this, Jesus is not being forceful here. He's not aggravated or agitated that, that Martha is serving and working. No, he's stepping into a really compassionate and vulnerable spot for Martha. And he says, Martha, Martha. And in fact, one commentator says this, the repetition of Martha's name conveys Jesus' affection for her and an understanding of her predicament. Well, what does Jesus say? He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And I love that Jesus addresses it in this way because he's getting right to the heart. Notice he says first, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. And see the Greek word here is merimnao and has a wide range of usages. And one of the usages is anxiety as we would think about it, an elevated sense of stress or tension. That's one of the usages. But another usage for this word merimnao is distracted. So he's calling it out, Martha, Martha. You are distracted by many things. And I think this distraction leads to a heightened level of anxiety in Martha's heart. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. You're distracted by many things. It fits Martha well, doesn't it? She's distracted with serving, distracted with table placements, distracted with food, distracted with the home, distracted that her sister isn't being more helpful. Distraction is a great way to describe Martha, and it leads to heightened anxiety in her heart. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Not only does he say that, Martha, you are, you are anxious, but also that you're troubled. Because I think in English, we can see both of those words and think they must mean the same thing. But here's what, here's what this word troubled means. In the Greek, it's thorabeu, and it means to be agitated. So because Martha is distracted by all of these things, she's become agitated. Does that define any of our hearts? I'm distracted by so much and I'm agitated by so much. Martha is agitated because more is not being accomplished. Agitated the food isn't better. Agitated the house isn't cleaner. Again, agitated because of her sister's laziness in her mind. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this agitation, in the midst of this frustration, and just the, the blood pressure continuing to raise with Martha, Jesus steps in to this really vulnerable place and he says, Martha, 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 you are distracted and agitated about many things. And as I thought about that phrase, I just thought about my own heart, the times that I'm distracted by many things. Oh man, if I could just get so-and-so to be a part of the team, that would change everything, but he's not, so now I'm agitated. Or you think, you name it, like the things that we become distracted with, and that just leads to further agitation in our heart. And Jesus, in the midst of that, says, Martha, Martha. As I've examined this in my own life, I've, I've just asked the question, why? 
Why do we tend to get looped up into these traps? And why does it seem like the tape is just on repeat and it loops over and over and over again? And so just from from examples of my own heart, I've just kind of nailed it down to a couple things why we kind of dive into these categories at different times. Number one is this. Sometimes we think this is what Jesus wants. I think if we were to talk to Martha, she would probably say, I thought Jesus wanted this. I thought Jesus wanted a good meal and a nice place to stay. I thought this is what he wanted. But we know this is not what Jesus wanted at all. I think Jesus wants us to serve and he wants us to give, but he wants us to do it with the right motivation, with the right priority list. And this is what he's getting at with Martha. And so when it comes time for us to serve, we want to serve like a Martha, but from a place of worship, not from a place of pride. See, and, and, and pride looks like this when it comes to serving. We want to keep our pride in check. But this is what it sounds like. All right, if I don't do it, then no one will. Have we said that before? Or if I'm not a part of it, then it's all going to fall apart. Or Jesus needs me. Have we said that before in our own heart? And when we operate from a place of pride in our serving, we increase our capacity when we shouldn't. We become, we become frantic in our endeavors because we think it all relies on us. And while serving is good, I think we can become agitated because we're operating from a place of pride rather than from a place of worship. And I don't think this is exactly what Jesus wants. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I think another category we fall into in this is we think our way is best. If I just had my way, if the plans that I had come to fruition, then everything would be good. And I think if we talked to Martha, she would probably feel the same way. If my sister would just help, then I wouldn't be agitated. If she would just give me a hand, then things would go so much better. So we get caught up in these loops. This is is all on me, or my way is best. And this is all operating from a place of pride. We want to serve. We want to give. And when it comes time, we want to be like Martha. We want to operate from a place of worship, not from a place of pride. And when we fall into these categories, this is when our priorities completely shift. What should be the main thing suddenly becomes a lesser thing. And this is what Jesus is sharing with Martha in this moment. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And then Jesus begins to use a real life illustration. He uses Martha's sister, Mary. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary has done the one necessary thing that will not be taken from her. See, Jesus is not trying to pit Martha and Mary against each other. I think Jesus has a real life illustration to share with Martha, and Mary is doing exactly the one thing that that Martha should be doing and should be operating from. This is why he uses the illustration. What was Mary doing? She was just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that so important? I think it's significant for at least two reasons. Number one is culturally. See, in Judaism, it was not uncommon for a person to sit at the feet of a rabbi or a teacher. When one would sit at the feet of a rabbi or a teacher, it was essentially a proclamation to the world that I'm a follower of this teacher. I'm a disciple of this rabbi. I'm sitting at his feet. I'm listening to every word that he says. I follow him. I identify with him. I am this person's student. Now, in this portion of history, there were three groups of people that were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. 
we have Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed, were unqualified to sit at the feet of a rabbi. They could not do it. Uh, the second group of people that were unable to sit at the feet of a rabbi were the Samaritans. Now, this is why I think the Samaritan, the, uh, the good parable Samaritan is so critical in Luke 10, because who's elevated in the story? Now, this is a picture of Christ, but Jesus elevated the Samaritan. He's the one who sacrificed. He's the one who gave. He's the one who tended this man who had been fallen robbers and thieves. He elevated the Samaritan. Those who are considered outcasts and disqualified, disenfranchised, they were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. Third group of uh, people that were unable to sit at the feet of a rabbi were women. Women were not allowed to sit, sit at the feet of a rabbi. But now, who's sitting at the feet of a rabbi now, of a teacher now? Not just any rabbi, not just a Jewish priest, but a, a Jewish Savior, our Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And so, Mary was saying to the world, saying to everyone and proclaiming, I follow Jesus. I listen to Jesus. I, I've been called to, to, to follow him and to proclaim his name. I follow Jesus. She was claiming and proclaiming her discipleship in this moment. I choose to follow him. And that's the amazing ministry of Christ. Because who did Jesus minister to in his earthly ministry? Gentiles and Samaritans and women, sometimes even Samaritan women. Like we see this is the, the ministry of Christ. And that is the message of the gospel. It is for all who believe. Doesn't matter socioeconomic status, doesn't matter gender or race, whatever. It's for all who believe. This was the ministry of Christ. And in this moment, Mary is declaring, I follow Jesus. I don't care what cultural norms are. I don't care what society says. I'm going to follow Jesus. This is my good portion. This is my top priority. I'm going to follow Jesus. So I think that's significant why she sits at the feet of Christ. I think a second reason this is so significant is because physically, you cannot get closer to a person than sitting at their feet, right? So if you were to come up on stage with, here, with me right now, you literally can't get any closer to me than sitting at my feet, just, just being here listening to the teacher. You can't get any closer than that. So one of the things that Mary was also showing is that I, I want to get as close as I can to Jesus. How close can I get? I want to hang on his every word. I want to listen to every word he says. Every word that drips from his mouth, I want to sit under, and I want it to fall on me, and I want to be a part of this teaching. I want to get as close as I can to Christ. This is my priority. This is my good portion. And everything I do from this, that is going to be stemming from the reality of my discipleship of Christ, my worship of Christ, my joy to follow Christ. Mary just wanted to be close to Jesus. Now, I think Martha did what she thought was best. The priorities were just out of whack. Jesus says, you're distracted by many things. There is one thing that is necessary. There's only one good portion. So the question on the table is, are we choosing the good portion as people? Or are we distracted by many things? Are we choosing the good portion? 
in order to help us think through this a little bit more, I just want to offer four diagnostic questions to help us think through, am I, is my priority list right? Am I choosing the good portion? Is, is my relationship with Christ the fuel that drives everything about me? Do I serve because I'm worshiping Christ? Do I give because I'm worshiping Christ? Do I share the gospel because I'm, because I'm worshiping Christ? It's, it's the fuel that drives us as people. So I hope these four questions are helpful to us. Are we choosing the good portion? Here's question number one. Am I setting a schedule that regularly pulls me away from church? This is diagnostic, diagnostic question number one. Because I think it can help us diagnose where our priorities are when it comes to church attendance. Because if church attendance isn't important to us, we will train our minds to think that, hey, this is just never going to be important and maybe it's going to even be optional. And if we have people following us, we're probably training them to think the same way. Church attendance is just optional and unimportant. Am I setting a schedule that regularly pulls me away from church? Diagnostic question number two is, have I prioritized recreation and hobbies over my time with Jesus? This will help us determine what, what our time was allotted to. We were really excited to spend more time in the boat. Again, not a bad thing, but that can't be our top priority. Whatever that looks like, have I prioritized recreation and hobbies over my time with Jesus? And number three is, have I become so distracted by the pulls of life that I no longer regularly worship Christ? Something in private worship here. Devotion time is kind of taking a, a back seat. You know, spending time journaling or praying, listening to, to worship music, whatever that looks like, that regular worship of Christ as it just, it's just not a part of my life anymore. And diagnostic question number four is this, can I go several weeks without spending time in God's word? Now, as, as, as a, one of the pastors here at Highland, I do a lot of uh, counseling, and one of the questions that I've recently started to ask in the last few months is this question right here. How many times have you read your Bible this past week? I, I found that to be a very probing question, and people are typically very honest. But here, let me just give you some insights on, on what this question, the answers I typically get from this question. It's somewhere between zero and one. Now, a lot of people that I meet with, they're crushing it. They're doing really, really good. Like they're doing three or four times a week, sometimes more. Some of them are doing great. Most of the time, it's somewhere between zero and one. Then I'm asking, okay, how about the week before? How about over the last month? And it's somewhere between zero and one, just scripture time time with Jesus, worship, spending time in his words, sitting at his feet, just hasn't become a priority to them. So I think these four diagnostic questions can help us identify, am I trying to do whatever I can to make sure Jesus is my good portion, or are we distracted with something else? I think sometimes we just need Jesus to step into our life and say, Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you here. You're distracted by many things, but I want you here. Highland, we're distracted by many things, but I want you here. Maybe you think about the things in your life that you're distracted with, and Jesus says, I want you here at my feet. Listen to my word. I want to be the good portion in your life. I want to be top priority in everything that we do. It should be the, the outflow of that. What is our good portion? Highland, I pray that Christ is our good portion. I pray that we fall at his feet. I pray we hang on his every word. I pray that we listen to his teaching and we share that message with the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you, God, that we could just spend a few moments 
looking through your word, worshiping through song, examining our own hearts. And God, I pray that over the course of this time together, Lord, we've been able to identify some of the areas in our heart that we've prioritized ahead of you. And Lord, if, if your spirit has brought that to our attention, I pray, God, that we'll be quick to repent, uh, turn away from those things, and turn uh, to the reality of walking closer to you, God, as the spirit draws us closer and closer to Christ. God, I, I pray for those that are, are battling with this culture of distraction and pulls and some of it good and, and some of it maybe not so good. I pray, God, that you will just speak into those areas so clearly. God, that maybe someone can come alongside them and help them through this. But God, ultimately, that we would find our good portion in Christ alone. That we could share the message of Christ with the world, God, and you will be glorified and magnified in all things. So be with us, Lord, through the remainder of this service. And God, may you be exalted in Christ's name we pray. Amen.